it was a hard place to live. I was food deprived for two years. So I go to this clinic and it's outside, outside in like a shack. And so I go into the bathroom. There's no toilet paper. There is no soap. Now, I'm freaking out at this point because I'm like, this is a medical facility. Like, how do I not catch something here? So I go upstairs. They put me on this machine, give me all of these tests, and then they tell me that I have a heart problem. So then, of course, then I leave there in a bigger panic than when I got there. And so I go back to the doctor and he says, you don't have a heart problem. He said, I looked at the tests. He was like, there's some irregularities. He said, but that could be caused by stress. He was like, tell me what's going on. So I tell him everything I just told you. Food deprived, I don't sleep well, the dogs and the cats are fighting at night, all of these things. And my personal life is going to shit. <laughs> Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, a business strategist and consultant from Atlanta, living and thriving in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, it's Christine. This is Flourish in the Foreign. Thank you so much for tuning back into the podcast. I appreciate y'all. Hope you all are taking good care of yourselves. A little housekeeping. So for those of you who are interested in podcasting, especially on a global scale, I want to first let you know that your girl... Yes, me. I am a judge for this year's International Women Podcasting Awards, which I am so proud to be asked and included. So that's really exciting. And the International Women Podcasting Awards will be taking place in London on Monday, November 6th. So if you're in London or close by and you want to come to the award ceremony, I think it's a really great place to learn more about podcasting, especially on the professional level, and just meet a lot of amazing podcasters and podcast professionals. It's going to be again in London at the Conduit Covenant Garden. But if you can't make it in person, there is a global live stream. Okay, so you can get tickets to watch it over the web. I want to let you guys know about it because I know that some of you guys are podcasters yourself, interested in growing your podcast. I think it would be a really great event just to learn because the International Women Podcast Awards celebrates the work of women and people of diverse genders from across the podcasting world. So whether you're a one person DIY podcast operation like me or a team of experienced audio journalists and producers, they just really love to celebrate the work that has been made. And the event really is an amazing opportunity to meet people 
and enjoy yourself. So if you haven't been to a podcasting event and you're not really sure, if you're able to make it to London, I think this would be a really great one to start off and go to because everyone's so nice. So again, International Women's Podcast Awards, Monday, November 6th. I am a judge and I actually might come into London for the event. So we will see. If you want to grab your tickets to the award show, you can via the link in the description or you can go to everybody-media.com slash awards. Some of you guys have sent me questions for the Ask Me Anything segment. I know that I still have outstanding questions from last time, particularly about those of you who are Caribbean passport holders wanting to immigrate to the U.S. or Europe in a highly skilled capacity, right? Wanting to go into corporate and stuff like that. I'm still working on that question. (laughs) Don't think I've forgotten about you. I have not. Any other questions that are outstanding? I'm still working on it, trying to find the people, and then ultimately trying to find the best format to deliver this kind of information. Maybe it'll be some type of mini episode or a blog post or something but I am still working on it. And for those of you that have questions about the podcast, me moving abroad, living abroad, thriving abroad, you can always submit questions to me and I will collect them for our end of the year wrap up and hopefully I'll have answers for y'all. But please don't think like I'm just like, I don't know, lollygagging. I actually am actively looking for these answers and getting recommendations and reaching out to people and waiting to hear back and seeing what we can do. So I am on it. Also, for those of you that are members of the Buy Me a Coffee membership, I just posted our coffee chat for this month. I'll be posting a lot more this week. So Be sure to tune in to Buy Me A Coffee. I have some events coming up and some videos dropping exclusively for my monthly supporters. I appreciate you so much. Please remember that the Flourish in the Foreign Patreon will be coming to an end at the end of 2023. So please be sure to become a monthly supporter at Buy Me A Coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. Also, stay tuned to the very end of this episode for a gift from me to you. All right, on to the episode. Season 5, Episode 4. Today's episode features Cheryl Ann Weeks. Cheryl Ann has been a counselor working with the teen population since 1997. She's an expert in social-emotional counseling, mental health, and university counseling. Cheryl Ann began working internationally in 2010 and has lived in many countries. She has lived in the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Ethiopia, Thailand, Egypt, the Ivory Coast, and now the United Arab Emirates. I had such a wonderful time recording with Cheryl Ann. Oh my goodness. I know y'all are really going to enjoy this episode. So I'll let Cheryl Ann tell you all about it. 
My name is Cheryl Ann Weeks. I am 49. My current location is Dubai. I was born in Barbados and I immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 11. So I would say that that was the, the thing, right? So being brought from one country to another, I think leaves you wanting to either go back or to find a place where you fit. Because what I would say about my childhood in the U.S. especially is that the first couple of years were rough as an immigrant from the Caribbean with an accent in an inner city with children who probably had never met anybody that talked like me. And so that was really hard. So for a long time, I dreamed about going back to Barbados. And I think some of that kind of stayed with me, even though I stayed in the U.S. and built a good life there, that some of that stayed with me. And I always had the desire to travel and see places, but I couldn't afford it. So I left the U.S. and then I could afford it. I asked Cheryl Ann to share with us her experience at university, what she studied, where she attended, and if she had the opportunity and interest to study abroad. I went to two universities, both in the U.S., one Pace University for a year, and then I transferred to Bentley University, which is in Massachusetts. And I did not study abroad mostly because it was financially prohibitive for me at that time. I couldn't afford it. And I just, I couldn't think of any way to afford it. So I did not do it. But I think that's the one thing that I regret about my college experience. And I think I regretted it up until I moved abroad and then I didn't anymore because I had these rich experiences. So I studied business at the time. I was a business major. And I went straight to graduate school and got a master's in counseling because I don't tell this story very often. One of my really good friends got murdered my junior year of college and it was really difficult. And I think in that moment, because when we found out why and who they were teenagers, who were robbing them. They were, he was home for spring break. Him and his cousin went to a party and the rest is kind of what happens sometimes. And I think for me in that moment, because I was a sociology major, I thought, well, maybe my life could be more meaningful being a counselor, working with teenagers, teaching them that there is something else out there that they didn't have to do what they did, which was take a person who was really important to me and his family away. So I would say that had a really big impact on my life because it changed the whole direction of my life. And I'm not sure how many people that know me know that story because I don't tell it very often. The journey to move abroad is rarely linear and often takes place in the depths of someone's mind years and years before it actually comes to fruition. So I asked Cheryl Ann to share with us her journey to moving abroad. I got my master's degree. I went back to Boston and lived at home for a little bit. And I think in Boston especially, it's a big immigrant town. So there's lots of us who immigrated there, but there's also in Boston is a college town. And so there's lots of also people coming from other countries to attend university there. 
So I think initially at Bentley, I started meeting students who came to the U.S. to go to university and then went back to their countries. So I think that started the itch in me again, right? And then once I left university and I lived in Boston for a couple of years, I moved to D.C., again, a very multicultural city. I started meeting people from all over the continent. And I think that kind of brought it up for me again in terms of, I could go and live somewhere. And initially, the thought was, I'll go back to Barbados. And then I couldn't figure out how to do that financially. Like when I crunched the numbers or looked at the possibilities of it, it just didn't seem like I could afford it as a counselor. And so I went on with my life. And I lived in D.C. for nine years, and I was pretty happy, I would say. I loved living in the DMV area. I lived in Maryland. I worked at D.C. public schools. I worked for a college prep organization. I worked at Howard University. All a good, rich, lovely life. And then I met a woman who was leaving the school we were working at at the time. And she was going abroad to teach English. And her and I were talking. She was a woman I had worked with at the previous school. We both ended up at another school together, Rebecca. And I said to her, what are you doing next year? She said, well, I'm not going to be here. And she said, well, I'm going to, I can't remember what country she was going to at the time. But she said, I'm going to this country. I said, to do what? To teach English. I said, as a second language? She said, no, to teach what I teach. And I said to her, do they have counselors there who can do that? And she was like, yes, let me send you the website. And in that moment, I decided that after the following school year, I would do it. And at the time, I thought I'll only do it for a year. It'll be something to kind of do this thing that I've always wanted to do. And I did. And my friends thought I was crazy. My mom, I think, she was kind of like, mm, well, I guess I figured it would come back around because you talked about it a lot as a younger person. By this time, I was 38. So I, like I said, I had lived a full, rich adult life. And I did. I had one more school year. And then at the end of the other school year, I quit. And I went abroad. I went to the DR, sight unseen. A frequently asked question I receive from all of you is how to land a job abroad. Now, I do have an episode in season one of this podcast called How to Get a Job Abroad. It's a whole compilation with the advice and experience of past podcast guests on how they landed their jobs abroad. So definitely check that out. And so I asked Cheryl Ann, what was the process of landing a counseling position abroad? Okay, so the first time was really hard <laughs> and I almost gave up. I had quit my job, given up my apartment. It was like May and I had no job, even to the point where the principal at the time said, well, do you have a job? And I said, no. She said, well, why don't you hold on to your resignation letter? But I was attending this church in Maryland at the time and the pastor was teaching about faith, stepping out on faith, allowing God to make our big dreams come true, dreaming big and all of that. So I was like, okay, if I've been going to this church for the last three or four years, and if I believe that God will provide, I have to do this. I know I don't want to be here again in August at this particular school. 
So I did. I stepped out on faith and I said, okay, God, I, I don't have a job. I don't have an apartment. I guess I'm going back home to live with my mom. And that's not what I want. And I remember I had gone to St. Thomas to interview for a job there. But I had looked, you know, in DR and all kinds of places, nothing. And I got this email from the school, but I hadn't applied to it. So I deleted it. I was like, I don't know this Adam guy. I don't know this school. So I deleted it. And then maybe about a week later, I got an email from him again. And I thought, okay, God, maybe this is something. So I opened the email. He said, I got your resume from a different school, the school that I had applied with. He said, they're looking for someone who speaks Spanish. You don't speak Spanish, but we're looking for someone with the, with the experience that you have. So long story short, I interviewed and that is the school I ended up at. In most cases, it's gotten easier since then. There are recruiting agencies that you can pay that will set up your whole profile and they will send your stuff to schools. There's so many different ways you can do it and there's levels to it. So you have the free organizations that do some stuff and has access to some schools. And then you have the ones that are not so expensive and then you have the premium ones, which are search associates and international school services. Now theirs tend to cost between a hundred to $500. And basically those are the ones that have the relationships with the premium schools. And the premium schools tend to be embassy schools, schools that have larger schools and schools that have really good benefits. So the school in the DR, although it was a good entry point, the benefits were not as good as, as I would say the school I'm at now. And that school came through the recruitment partnership line for lack of a better term. I asked Cheryl Ann how she prepared to leave the U.S. and what it was like when she finally landed in the Dominican Republic. So that process took a month and a half because remember now I was living in D.C. So I had to pack up my apartment, sell things, give away things, pack them in my car and drive to Boston. That was stressful because you accumulate nine years of things, things you didn't even realize you had. So once I got to Boston, I think I had about two and a half weeks in terms of paring down some more. What am I going to take to the DR with me? And you get all these pictures from the school, but you've never been there. And I remember my sisters being like, well, how do you know it's a real school? How do you know you don't get there? And then you end up kidnapped or something. And it was just like, well, there's this process and there's this contract and there's this housing process. So it wasn't that it was disjointed at all. It was, but for them, it was that you haven't seen this place. How do you know it's not in the middle of who knows what? So it was, again, that trust, that trust that I've done my research. I looked at the school's website. They, I read the contract. I've given them all my specifications. And so then packing and trying to get, I think I was, at the time I was trying to take three suitcases, which is not a lot. And so there was a lot of trying to get things done, doctor's appointments, those types of things, because you don't know what the system is like there. 
And then the night before I left, I threw my back out trying to pick up my suitcase. Or it was two days or something like that. So the next day, my sister took me to a chiropractor or a massage therapist or whatever because I needed to be able to at least stand up straight. And I was literally crawling out of my bed to go to the bathroom, like on my hands and knees because I could not. I was in so much pain. I could not stand up straight. And she was like, how are you going to get on a plane? How are you going to get your bags to the airport? And so... This woman went to this massage therapist or chiropractor and she kind of worked out some of the kinks. I was still in a lot of pain, but I could at least stand up straight to get through the airport, to sit on a plane, to go to the DR. And I think it wasn't even a direct flight. So I arrive and it's nighttime. And the most interesting thing about that, it was that this school, unlike some of the other schools with more resources, you had a roommate. And I was going back and forth with the principal and the head of school for the last couple of weeks about, well, it can't be somebody who smokes because I'm allergic to smoke. It can't be somebody who has cats or dogs because I'm allergic to that too. It can't be somebody. So anyway, so I was just, I was a little anxious about that living with another person as a grown up because I was like, I've been living alone for these last 10 years. So I get there and they meet me at the airport and she says, oh, we found you a single. And I started to chuckle in my head because I thought, oh, yeah, because you had too much things you wanted. And we, they couldn't figure it out. So they were like, let's put this woman in a single because she gonna make whoever she's living with crazy. So I ended up with a single. And it was night, so I couldn't tell what the neighborhood was when I got there. So I go into this little apartment. Mind you, I've been living in a big apartment. So it was kind of like a studio efficiency. And I wake up the next day and I am in the middle of nowhere. Like when I look out, there are fields and grass and nothing else around the housing. There's like four buildings and then nothing. So I go around the corner and somebody says, oh, walk up this street to go to the school. Luckily, the school was in walking distance. But even from walking around the neighborhood, there was very little there. And I thought, uh-oh, what is this city girl going to do in the middle of nowhere? I asked Cheryl Ann to describe her first year abroad. I was like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. There were two stores like in walking distance and I walk into one of the restaurants to try to get a meal and the guy did not speak any English and of course my Spanish was bad so I thought okay this is gonna be harder than I thought but the school was good it had some great resources the challenge for the school side was that it was their first graduating class so there were no transcripts I had to create those there were no systems in terms of getting kids looking at colleges. I had to create those. And so it was hard. I, I met people and I eventually got to like them. But I would say the first month and a half, I was miserable because I was like, what did I sign up for? There are no systems for college. There's no transcripts. I had to write one of my friends and be like, I need to create a transcript. What's the best way to do that? Because I had always worked at schools that had registrars. And here I was doing everything because the first graduating class had eight students. So they thought you can do it. 
and I was doing grades three to 12. Now I'm a high school counselor. So this was the first time I had to work with little people. So all of these new things, I don't speak Spanish. The housing is okay. My apartment was cold and full of mold from like the first week. So it was just like one thing from another, like mold, the apartment. I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I can't even get something to eat because I don't know the word. So I did three things. I made friends. I started to learn the Spanish words for all the foods I wanted to eat. And I put a big chart on my wall and wrote down all the Spanish words for the foods that I eat. I learned how to ask for the bathroom. I learned to say, I don't want that. <laughs> like basic things. Good morning. Thank you. Good night. And the school, because we were in the middle of nowhere, it had a van that took you to get groceries on Saturday. So that was good because that meant a group of us went. So it wasn't something I had to do by myself. And then I want to say sometime in October, late October, it just kind of all started to click because I was like, I can do this now that I know how to do the transcript. The counseling part I knew. So it was more just getting to, used to the housing and the environment. But I made friends with the French teacher and her and I are friends to this day. And the principal was this younger guy. He was younger than me from Oregon. Him and I couldn't have been any different. <laughs> and he was one of them happy people. I don't trust happy people. I was like, he too happy all the time. Mm -mm, I don't know why. But he was determined to figure it out with me. And he was open and he listened when I was like, yeah, this doesn't work. We got to do it this way. So he trusted my expertise and him and I are best friends to this day. So it worked out. <laughs> I stayed two years, which was good for me because initially I was going to go do it a year. I was dating somebody in, in Maryland. And I was like, I'm going to do this for a year. I don't plan to stay. And so I think the biggest change I saw in me personally and professionally was that I realized I could breathe there. When I was working in public schools in DC, I felt like my feet were on fire. I was moving from the minute I got to work to the minute I left. Some days I didn't eat lunch to three o'clock. I was constantly going, 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 going. In the DR, what I learned was work-life balance and everybody went to lunch at lunchtime. The principal was like, if you need to meet with kids, go eat your lunch first in the cafeteria and then come back the last 15 minutes of lunch and meet with kids. So that was the first time that the administrator had said, your well-being is important. Take the minutes, go, to, go and eat your lunch. Yes, you can meet with kids at lunch, but don't eat at your desk. So people went as a community. I learned about communities in schools because people sat at lunch and they talked and they laughed. And because we were in the middle of nowhere and everybody who worked at the school lived in the same housing, we hung out on the weekends. Now, initially that was hard for me because I'm all about turning off, shutting down, not talking to people on my weekends. That was the big transition. But what came out of it was a better sense of community that I don't think I had had or thought was possible in a school in the way that didn't make me cringe. Initially, it made me cringe because kids would walk by and poke their head in my windows and be like, hey, Miss Weeks, what you doing? <laughs> that was hard. 
But once I learned how to help them understand that that was not okay, and like I said, I made some friends and we went out to that crappy taco place every single Friday because it was the only thing in walking distance. And we laughed and drank and ate bad tacos. I stayed the extra year because I think I liked the work-life balance. I liked that I wasn't running around like my feet were on fire. Even though I was supporting more grades, I was supporting less students. And Adam and I became friends. So then that was really cool to work with someone who valued my opinion and listened, even if he didn't agree. And then I left because living in a Spanish country when you don't speak the language is hard. So every time I left campus, it was hard. I learned certain things to help me get through it on campus, but going out into the community, like I couldn't go out in the community by myself. So I always felt like here I am at 38 and I got to take somebody with me to the bank. I didn't like that. I didn't like the lack of independence for me was really difficult. And so I thought I've learned some good things about myself in terms of balance and well-being and that kind of thing. I want to keep going, but I want to go to a country where, I, where English is a possibility so I can navigate my personal things on my own. So Sherilyn has spent two years in the Dominican Republic, one year longer than she originally had thought she would, and now she was leaving. And so I asked her, where did she go next? Jamaica. So as a Caribbean girl from Barbados, Jamaica was like home. I had never been to Jamaica up until that point. But from the time I stepped foot on Jamaica, I knew that this was going to be a good experience. Three things happened. The principal was really cool. When I interviewed with him, I was like, oh, I'm going to like working with him. Second, they flew me out there to see the school in March. So it wasn't sight on scene. So I went to the school in March and I got to meet people. I got to find out about the systems and all of that. They had good systems in place because the principal used to be the counselor. So he kind of knew what was necessary. And then it was an IB program. And IB is International Baccalaureate. And any person will tell you the premium schools in the international region are mostly IB schools. So if you want to get to the next level of schools, which means the next level of money, which means the next level of benefits, you want to get IB training. And so... That was my goal, to find a school where I could get IB training in a country where either English was the language or people spoke English. And I got lucky. You know, I got to go to a place like Jamaica, which is close to Barbados. It was beaches. It was great food. It was great music. So my personal life, it improved exponentially in Jamaica. It was amazing. I asked Cheryl Ann what it was like living and working in Jamaica. So Jamaica changed my life, especially professionally, not so much personally, because like I said, I felt at home, like I felt like it was nice. I was in a Caribbean place, so I knew the foods, even the ones that I didn't know. I knew, you know, the culture. It was, it was great in that way. And so I had more of a personal life there. I got to go to parties and all of that. 
But professionally, I learned a lot in terms of being trained in IB. I was the counselor and the coordinator, and I got to learn so much there that helped me in all the other schools that I worked in. Most of the lessons that I learned that first year helped me. Now, I ended up leaving Jamaica after two years, even though I thought I would just die in Jamaica because I was like, it's close to Barbados. I can go to Barbados whenever I want. But the administration changed the second year. And unfortunately, sometimes when new administrators come in, it changes the whole culture of the school. And this was that. The new head of school and principal, they were... You know, I'll just say it. They were toxic. They created an environment where people were looking over their shoulders. They created an environment where people were afraid to speak up. They didn't listen when you did speak up. They created an environment of fear. And so I decided that I wasn't going to stay because I didn't want to work with them or for them. So although she had an initial excellent time professionally in Jamaica, she encountered what so many of you encounter, is that with a change of leadership, there's a change in work culture. And so she decides to leave. And so I asked her, where did you go next? The next job was Ethiopia. And in that moment, I loved living in Jamaica and being around Black culture. And I thought, well, maybe this is a chance for me to get to fulfill my dream from high school was I always wanted to go to Africa. And at the time, I wanted to go to South Africa because I was about all things Nelson Mandela. I read everything. I watched everything. I was, I guess I was enthralled by his example, but also about history. So I didn't look for any schools that were not on the continent because I said, okay, God, this is what I want. I want to be on the African continent. And so that took a little longer because there are not as many schools on the continent that were looking for counselors. And so I think initially when I got the job in Jamaica, it was in November. So it was early. And then for Ethiopia, I think I was almost late February. And so I think I was starting to freak out a little bit. I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm going back to the U.S. But a job came and it was an IB school. And again, they flew me out so that I could see the school. So those were, that's how you get to the premium schools. And this school was an embassy school. And what it means when it's an embassy school is that the benefits are a little better. The school is attached to the embassy, so you have some protections. And I put that in air quotes because you really don't, but it's implied that things are going to run a little smoothly. The school in Jamaica was an embassy school, and that didn't stop people from coming in the second year and blowing everything up. But I was excited to be going to Ethiopia, even though when I looked at the history of Ethiopia, I was like, oh, I don't know. This might be hard. Went to Ethiopia and I visited and yes, <laughs> it was hard. For the minute I touched down, I was like, ooh, this is not going to be like Jamaica. My life is not going to be as cushy. But I was really excited about the job. I was excited about the work I could do. I was excited about the autonomy that was promised with this job. And it, I had autonomy in Jamaica as well in the first year, but 
I was also excited to be in Africa. Like that had been my dream since I was like 16 years old. So, and at the time I was 40. So I was like, all right, dreams coming true. I stayed in Ethiopia two years and you'll see a pattern <laughs> with me. I am a wanderer. So I'll just say that up front. I am a wanderer. And I stayed in Ethiopia for only two years, primarily because I was sick the entire two years. I had two issues. Everything I ate either gave me a migraine or stomach issues. It just, for most people, they will tell you that you get that for the first two or three months and then it goes away. For me, it was the entire two years. To the point where I lost so much weight between August and Christmas when I went home that my mother was like, what's happening? What's wrong? And I'm like, nothing. I'm good. And she was like, you're not good. You're losing weight. So personally, it wasn't as great. But professionally, I loved what I was doing. I loved the autonomy that I had. The school had great resources. There were some really great people working there. The principal was meh. But... Everything else was great. I thought, okay, well, let's see what happens. And I think I probably would have stayed longer if the second year I hadn't still been sick. I remember I had a panic attack in Ethiopia, the first panic attack I ever had, and I thought I was having a heart attack. And it was on a Saturday night. So of course I couldn't go to the doctor the next day. So I go to the doctor on Monday and I describe what happened. He says, that's not a heart attack. He was like, you had a panic attack. And I said, well, why would I have a panic attack? And he was like, I don't know what's going on. And I said, nothing. I was at a party. There was a party downstairs. I was drinking and having a good time and singing karaoke. And I thought I was having a good time. I said, and then I went upstairs because I was tired. I said, and the minute I walked through my apartment door, I had a panic attack. And so he was like, okay, well, let's send you to this heart clinic. Here's the thing I didn't tell you about Ethiopia. Ethiopia is like a hardship post. The money was good, but there's a reason. Because the electricity went off every day. The lights went off. I mean, the water went off periodically. You could be driving, and I was mad enough to drive in Ethiopia. Cows, horses, goats would just be on the road. There were no traffic signals. At night, there were very few lights, so I tried not to drive at night because you had to drive with your high beams on. It was a hard place to live. I was food deprived for two years. So I go to this, doc this clinic, and it's outside, outside in like a shack. And so I go into the bathroom. There's no toilet paper. There is no soap. Now, I'm freaking out at this point because I'm like, this is a medical facility. Like, how do I not catch something here? So I go upstairs, they put me on this machine, give me all of these tests, and then they tell me that I have a heart problem. So then, of course, then I leave there in a bigger panic than when I got there. And so I go back to the doctor and he says, you don't have a heart problem. He said, I looked at the tests. He was like, there's some irregularities. He said, but that could be caused by stress. He was like, tell me what's going on. So I tell him everything I just told you. Food deprived, I don't sleep well, the dogs and the cats are fighting at night, all of these things, and my personal life is going to shit. 
And so he says, okay, this is what I want you to do. He was like, I can write you a prescription and send you home right now. It was, it was May. And I said, no, graduation's coming up. You got all these things to get done. He said, okay, well, when you get to Boston, you need to go have this test done again. He said, and then let me know when you come back in August. So I did that. And my doctor said, no, you have high blood pressure. He said, but there's nothing wrong with your heart. But when I told the technician who was giving me whatever that thing was in the machine, she says, well, where were you? And I told him, she said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. She says, on the continent, she said, people tend to get really scared. When She said, you have these rhythms, though. She said, you do have a heart irregularity. She said, maybe that's what made them think you had a heart problem. She said, but it's nothing big. So I had high blood pressure. So (laughs) I went back for the second year. And I think because I was still sick, like the entire school year from August to June, I thought, I don't know if this is sustainable. Especially now that I know I have high blood pressure, I was just like, maybe I need to go someplace that is easier on me. Professionally, it was great, but I decided to start looking again. Cheryl Ann is preparing to leave Ethiopia. I asked her what were some of the good things she enjoyed while living in Eastern Africa and where she landed next. What I loved about living in Ethiopia was that I got to go to all the African countries. I think I went to Zanzibar. Of course, I went to South Africa because that had been my dream. I went to Kenya. I think I also went to Ghana that year. So I think that year I went and I went to Rwanda, I think. And then I went to Thailand to visit my friend Lucy, who was the French teacher in the DR. She was now living in Thailand. So I went to visit her. And so that is where I ended up next, Thailand. I wanted to stay in Africa, but part of what is different about the international school job arena is that you go where there are jobs. A lot of people think you choose these countries based on your interests. And sometimes that is true for teachers because there are more teacher jobs. But for counselors, there are less jobs and there are less high school counselor jobs. So for me, every place I went, it wasn't that I wanted to go to that particular country. It's that these were the four counselor jobs for high school counselors. And I looked at those four countries and said, okay. I'm going to apply to all four, but which one I get? And if I get more than one, then what's my top choices from what is offered? So all of that to say, I ended up in Thailand. The nice thing about that was that Lucy was there and I thought, okay, well, at least I have a friend. But I ended up in Bangkok. She was on an island in Samui. So ended up at a British school. And here's what people don't tell you. British schools, American schools. International schools, they're all international schools, but the way things are done is very different. So somebody should have told me that going to work for a British school was like learning two languages, the international school language and then how British people do things. Even the words they use were different. And so they would say some words sometimes and I'd be like, what does that mean? I'm not sure what you're saying. And this school was humongous. Now, the first three schools, the first two had been really small. The one in Ethiopia, larger, but lots of resources. There were two high school counselors, there was a middle school counselor and two elementary counselors, lots of resources. This school is probably 
an educator's dream in terms of resources. The school really put their money where their mouth was, right? The school in Thailand was beautiful and flashy and 2,000 students. So when I got there, the immediate feeling I got was being overwhelmed. I asked Cheryl Ann to describe her first year in Thailand. Luckily, this was one of the schools in Bangkok that provided housing for first year teachers. So I did not have to find housing. The housing was in walking distance, but as you know, Bangkok is really hot. So they provided a bus in the morning to drive us to school, even though it was in walking distance. I think the biggest change personally was that I don't think the people in that neighborhood had ever seen a black person. I'd have seen a black person with dreadlocks. And at the point that I was in Thailand, my dreadlocks were bright red and they were down my back. So imagine the first day I go outside after I go in, I take a nap, I put on my clothes because there's a market up the street and I need food. I go outside and the minute I step outside, all the children start screaming and running away. Yes, yes, screaming and running away. But because I had lived internationally before, I was not hurt. I knew exactly what was happening. Because even in the DR, initially, kids would stare at me because I probably was the first black person in an administrator role they had ever met. But in Thailand, for about Two weeks, three weeks, every time I would come out of the building, kids would be playing. They were just screaming, going like, you could see their parents being like, it's okay, it's okay, she lives there. So eventually they would say, Sawadika, because they got to remember my face and they, I was no longer scary. The other thing that happened was I remember going to get a massage. <laughs> and again, black girl. And the woman was like, ooh, madam, your skin is so soft. And I was like, yeah, same, same, just like yours. It's not different, just a different color. But I kept having those types of experiences. Going into a store to pay for something, and instead of taking the money, they reached over to touch my skin to see what it felt like. Yeah, so, so that was hard, personally. The apartment was lovely. Like I said, it was close to school. There was a market up the street, so I could eat for cheap. I could drink coconut water every day, which was my joy, but work was a lot. There were five of us and we were in a shared space. Lord. So that means five people talking to students, talking on the phone, all in a big room. I didn't understand it. Like why? The school was huge. They had great resources. The bathrooms were even nice. And I was just like, why are we all in this room? So what, what we would do, they had conference rooms all around the counseling suite. So I would just sometimes take my computer and take it to one of those conference rooms and sit in there when I had to think. Because I was just like, this is too much. People chewing, people talking, people breathing. <laughs> it just felt like a lot. So the caseload was much larger and it felt overwhelming and the pace of the school was like again feeling like my feet were on fire but the people were great my co-workers were great the counseling team was great 
I didn't get to know as many teachers because the school was just so big. The other thing was, in addition to being the only black girl in the community, I was the only black girl at that school. 2,000 kids, over 200 teachers, and they could not find another black girl. It was myself, there was one black man from Angola, and there was an Indian woman, oh, and a Hispanic man. Everybody else in that school was white. So that to me was shocking because I had an experience that even in the DR, they were black teachers. Well, of course, in Jamaica, but in Ethiopia, there was a mixture. Even the expat staff, there was a mixture. But to be the only black girl in a school of that size, it just felt intentional to me. And it was weird. Because for me, what's always been important is to have some type of community outside of work. I didn't have it in the DR, but I had it in Jamaica. I didn't have it as much in Ethiopia, but there were enough of us where I made friends with the elementary teachers. But in Bangkok, it felt like, I don't know. (laughs) So I made friends with the people who were new. But all the pictures that I look at from that year, I'm the only little brown chocolate dot in a sea of white people. You know, what was great about Thailand? I loved living in Thailand because as a city girl, it was a city I could get on the train and go wherever I wanted to. I never got on those motorcycles. I think I got on one one day because it was raining. And when it started raining, we would all rush home because our street flooded with dirty water. And if you didn't run home, you had to walk through dirty, garbage infested water. That was the one day that I took one of those motorcycles because I was like, there's no way because I didn't get home in time. And I was like, there's no way I am walking through that. I will probably get rabies or something. I don't know. So there was that. The one good thing about the community at the school, even though it was really large, there was such a large number of us who came in together. And I was like the auntie in that group because I think I was the oldest person in that group. Everybody was in their 20s. But because we all lived in the same building, people respected each other's privacy, but there was always stuff to do. So we had a WhatsApp group and they would be like, we're going here today. And if I wanted to go, I would go. And then if I didn't want to go, I didn't go. And that was good. It was different in the way that it reminds me of something as I tell you this. In Ethiopia and Jamaica, it was harder to do that because people would be like, oh, Charlene don't want to come hang out with us. And I would be like, I'm just tired. I'm an introvert. I talk all day. So I want to go home and not talk for hours. In Thailand, I didn't experience that. When I didn't go, they were like, okay. And then the next week they would invite me again. They didn't take it personally. So maybe that was because they were younger and they were like, it's all right. She don't want to go. Maybe because they thought I was the old auntie. I don't know what it was, but there was a level of freedom to that, that I didn't have to be like, oh, I have to go to this thing so that they don't think, you know, I don't like people, but they would invite me every single time. And sometimes I went and sometimes I didn't go and it was perfectly fine. So there was a freedom in that. So Cheryl Ann had to unexpectedly leave Thailand, and I asked her what prompted this leave and 
how did it all go down for her professionally? I left Thailand after this first year, primarily because my grandmother got sick. And my grandmother helped raise me and she was living in Barbados at the time. And I remember I called her on her birthday, which is in January, and she didn't know who she was talking to. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know it was her birthday. She kept saying, who are you? And I remember I hung up the phone and I called my sister and I said, something's wrong with Gran. And she said, why? What happened? And I said, I called her and she didn't know me and she didn't know who she was talking to. And I said, she hung up the phone. And so she was like, you had been saying that since the summer because I had this habit of going to Barbados every summer to see my Gran. And when I went that summer before, something was just off. I think I had sent her money or something and she couldn't find the check. She didn't remember getting it. She didn't know where it was. It had been months. And so I kept saying something's wrong with Gran. And they were like, no, she's just sad because my uncle had died the year before. And so when I called her, I thought, I can't be all the way in Thailand if something happens to my grandmother. I need to be closer. And so I broke my contract, which is never a good thing. And it took me months to decide because I really didn't decide till like the end of March. I kept trying to think, well, maybe it's a one-off thing. Maybe she was just having a bad day. But eventually my gut was like, yeah, I can't be here. I got to be closer. So I thought I'll go, I'll find a job closer. I'll get to spend some time with her. I'll get to see her more often. And so I told them either in March or April and they were not happy because in international schools, the recruiting time starts early, like October. They want you to tell them in November, whether you're leaving in June. It's hard. It's hard to make that decision in November, knowing that other things can happen throughout the year. And unfortunately, this is one of the hard things about international schools. They are not forgiving when you decide later on that you're leaving. So I told them and my line manager was like, okay, I understand family makes sense. The principals, the assistant principals, the head of schools, the HR person, they were less than kind. So what they do is they say, we're not gonna pay for your flight to go home because you broke your contract. This school in particular didn't pay for my last month of my salary because they were like, well, you don't work for us anymore. And then they were like, well, you get off work June, mid-June, so we're only going to pay you for half of June. So it's those types of not-so-nice behaviors that can happen. So you feel almost punished for choosing or for having family emergencies when you have to break your contract. But I left anyway. And to add insult to injury, I could not find a job. So because I, I started late, I started looking for jobs in April and the recruiting season in international schools typically are done by April. So I looked, I didn't find anything. So I went home to Boston. I always tell people, as long as my mother had some place to live, my room was still there. So I stayed home. I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll find something in the summer. I didn't. I went to see my grand. I spent a lot of time with her. I stayed longer than I would usually stay. And then... I was stuck in Boston until March of the next year, until I got a job in Egypt. So I won't lie and tell you that I wasn't depressed. 
I was definitely, but I didn't second guess it. And I think that that was the good part that even as I talk about it now, because that was 2017, I think I don't regret doing that because my grand just died two months ago. And for me, she was everything. And so to be out of work or whatever, that money I lost, whatever I lost as a result of leaving, breaking that contract, nothing would have compared to if I had lost her then while I was in Thailand. So I got to spend time with her. I got to love upon her. That was the last time she remembered me in those months that I saw her in between 2017 and I went again in 2018 because I wasn't working. And so that was the last time she recognized my face. And so for me, nothing compares to being able to spend that time with her. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, back to the episode. Egypt was not even on my list. Again, like I tell people, at least Bangkok was an intentional choice because I was like, Lucy's there. I didn't know anybody in Egypt. I had no desire to live in Egypt, but I was like, it's on the continent, so let's look at it. So I applied to a couple of schools in Egypt, and I can't remember where else I applied, but I ended up choosing the school in Egypt because they were looking for somebody to start immediately. And it was March and I had been tired of being home. (laughs) My bank account was dwindling, and it was so cold in Boston. So I thought, okay, let's see, why not? And at this point I had learned I can do hard things. Even if it's not the best fit, then how bad can it be, right? So I took a middle school position because I had worked middle school in in the DR, I had worked middle school in Jamaica. So I thought, okay, that's fine. It's not high school, which is where my sweet spot is, but I can do it. And so I went to Egypt. I think I left on my mother's birthday, which was April 8th. And I went to Egypt. And the hardest part about Egypt, well, it was a couple of things, if I'm being honest. I'm trying to be honest today. Because I usually tend to really tell the good side of things. My sister always tells me, she said, you know, you notice you do that. I said, what? She said, you always try to downplay bad things. She was like, stop doing that. Tell the truth. So I just heard her. There were a lot of things that were really hard about living in Egypt. The first thing was that 
you have to find your own housing. So they put you with a realtor. They put you in a hotel, I think for a week. And they stick you with a realtor who takes you around Cairo and shows you apartments. Unlike in the U.S. where the apartments are clean, these are not. They're dusty. You can't even tell what the apartment looks like. So of all the places that I looked at, it was just like, how do I know this place is going to look good when they clean it? So there's that. Then there's the language barrier because most of the, the landlords speak some English, but not much. And then there is the stray dogs and the trash in Cairo. Whew, girl, there are so many stray dogs and I don't like dogs. I'm scared of dogs. So many stray dogs, stray cats, and so much trash everywhere in Cairo. Like I used to always say I would never live in New York because New York is dirty. Cairo is filthy and I mean it. And not to offend anybody, but it's filthy. It's a filthy city. The trash system just, it doesn't work. So I go through this thing of finding an apartment. I find one, I take it. I met Laura, she worked at the school. I had reached out to her through one of the black expat groups. And she kind of told me what the school was like. She's an elementary teacher. I was in middle school. So her and I became fast friends. So that was the one blessing of being in Egypt because we're still friends now. So the school was surprising. And here's why I would say that. Because the counselor had left. The principal told me he was sick. I get there and I find out this man was not trained as a counselor and had created a mess. So here I was again, trying to create systems in a place that didn't have them. Now the beauty of the school was that they had a two great high school counselors and I think the one elementary counselor was good. So there was systems throughout the school, just not in middle school. And they were both very honest about who the previous counselor was. And they were like, we're happy you're here. Now here's all the things you're gonna have to do. So at least I had support in the department. And this school, unlike the school in Bangkok had I think it was eight black people. So I was happy. I thought I was in heaven. And there was a big expat group of educators in Cairo at all the different international schools there. So while living in Egypt was hard because the first apartment turned out to be crap. So I ended up living there till June and moving. The second apartment was not crap, but the landlord was a bully. The great thing about Cairo was that I had a community again outside of work. We had a book club. We went to food things. We went partying. We had Thanksgiving dinner. We went on a trip to Dahab, which is a beach city. So it was a lot of community outside of work. And even though Laura and I were friends from work, and there was a couple of other of us who were friends who all worked at that particular school, there were a lot of us also from other places, people who worked at the embassy, people who worked at other schools, people who worked in other places, but it was a great community. And I made a lot of good friends, so that was great. So I ended up leaving Egypt after that year and a half because there was a new head of school the second year that came in and he was great, but there was a loophole in the contract that they didn't realize. So they sent the papers out in November and the paper says 
if you've only been here a year and you don't feel like this school is a good fit for you, you can leave. And I thought, well, I don't love this school. I don't really love middle school kids. So I'd prefer to be back in high school. And because I knew these two ladies at that point had been in Cairo at that school for six years, they weren't going anywhere. So I thought there's no need for me to stick around hoping to get into high school because that's not going to happen. I'm not loving my landlord. I'm not loving living in Cairo, even though I'm having a good social life. So let me try my odds. So I go and I talk to the head of school and I said, so I just want to point this out to you so that you can fix it before anybody else sees it. (laughs) And he said, well, thank you for bringing it to my attention. I said, however, you can change it. I said, but however, I'm going to take that loophole. And he said, okay. He said, well, tell me, tell me about you. Why do you want to leave? And so it was the first time I had a school had really been like, tell me what you want. And so I basically said to him, I'm a high school counselor. I would love to go back to high school. And he said, okay. He said, where else are you thinking? I said, I'm going to stay in Africa. And he said, okay. There were like four jobs in Africa at that point. He said, if you don't get that job, will you stay? And I said, yeah, I'll stay another year. And so he said, okay, well, I support you in seeking it out. Let me know. And he wrote me a reference and he let me go. The principal was not as happy. So I applied for these four jobs and I got one of them, the one in the Ivory Coast. And what was really exciting about the job in the Ivory Coast was that it was basically everything I wanted to do. So like Ethiopia was like the closest to my dream job, this one in the Ivory Coast felt like that again. So I thought, okay, lightning in a bottle, it doesn't strike very often. Now, of course, again, when I looked up, did all the research on the Ivory Coast, I was like, ooh, is this gonna be a hardship post like, <laughs> like Ethiopia again? So I decided on my own that I would go and visit. They weren't flying me out at that point, but I was in Egypt, I thought I'll take two of my personal days and go and see the school for myself. So even though I had accepted, I was just like, that way I know what I'm getting into. I operate better when I know that. And so I did, I went, took my luggage. The principal agreed to keep my luggage at school. So I took two suitcases and left them there. And I went and I met the kids and I saw the school and and I fell in love with the kids. And if they ever hear this, this podcast, they're going to be like, we knew it, miss. And it wasn't just the students in the Ivory Coast. It was the school. It was the, the systems. It was the other people who worked there. And housing was crap. So that's something else. But I loved working at that school with those students, with the middle school principal, I used to tell her that me and her were partners in justice instead of partners in crime. Because even though we were very different, she's a white girl, Jewish from Kansas. What was great about our partnership was that we didn't make any assumptions about each other. We asked, we had tough conversations. She was open. She was willing Even when I said things that she was like, ouch, she was willing to learn and listen and hear it. And yeah, we had a, we had a great partnership. And so, yeah, I really missed that school. And then we started the school year and then COVID happened.
right after spring break. And so that was a transition to be in the Ivy Coast in the middle of a pandemic. That was hard. So Cheryl Ann is currently in Dubai. I got here in January. So short. But here's what I'll say. I've worked for schools where I could tell immediately when things were off. And whether that is my perception, my mother will always say that as a kid, I was always very slow to warm. And what I said to her one day, it wasn't wasn't that I was slow to warm. I said I could feel people's energy and I could meet people and be like, I don't like this person. They're going to do something bad to me. I didn't know what it was. And of course, as an 11 year old, everybody thought I was a little strange and I was, but I wasn't wrong most of the times. And in the opposite way, the school in Dubai has been good. It's not perfect. There are things that I would like to change, but the people are kind and respectful and they respect my expertise and they respect the differences that I see the world different in them. And then when my grandmother died, I had basically been at the school a month and a half and everybody was supportive. And I went to Barbados for her funeral and took six days off. Didn't have to do that, but it was the difference, right? Between a school that says, this is important to you and we care about you and let us know how we can support you. And even like, when my grandmother died, when I found out my grandmother died, it was a Tuesday morning. I was getting ready for work. And of course, I didn't go to work. And then for the next two or three days when I went to work, people were like, you don't have to do anything. Let me just take that meeting. Let me deal with that student. People didn't expect me to be okay. And they held space for my grief. And so for that, I will always be grateful to to the people at that job, you know, for the head of school who came into my office and was like, I heard your grandmother died. And he was like, I didn't see you last week, so I didn't know, but I'm just coming to check on you. He said, and I know I'm not going to ask you if you're okay. He said, but I just want you to know if you need anything, let me know. So those are the types of people that I'm working with now. And I am grateful for that. Soft life, the best life. I asked Cheryl Ann about her thoughts on the concept of Black girls' soft life and if she feels that she lives a soft life. So I'm all about soft life. And I think a soft life is exactly why I stayed international, right? So the ability to have balance, to not spend all of my days working, struggling, beating myself over the head, being abused. So soft life for me is finding people who accept me as I am. Like, I don't have to make myself small or be different. Like, this is what you get. This Caribbean weird girl who is an introvert who will say she's coming and stuff and then change her mind 30 minutes before she's supposed to be there and send you a text and be like, I'm not coming and I'm not giving you an explanation, I'm just not coming. And you're okay with that because it's for a good reason, right? Like I just couldn't do it. I can't do it. I've talked to enough people today. So soft life in me is that, being accepted as I am. Comfort. So comfort in terms of financial, not having to struggle financially. One of the best things about international life is they pay for your housing. So that's a chunk of money you don't have to spend. For people who live in the U.S., they know how much rents and mortgages and that cost. So that can, just that alone tells you how much money you can save in terms of coming out of your budget. 
soft life is working in a well-resourced school, like not having to struggle for little things, not having to pay for things. When I lived in DC, I was paying for college applications. I was buying prom tickets. I was feeding kids because that's what they needed. And I wasn't making a lot of money, but that's what we did. Not just me, the people in that school. We, we took care of kids because that's what they needed. And that's part of what leads to us burning out. So working at a job that does not burn me out, having the ability to travel because I love travel. I love three things, coconut ice cream, chocolate, traveling. And I get to do that because I live internationally. I wouldn't be able to afford to do that if I lived in the U.S. I think I'm coming up on like 48 countries. When I left the U.S., I had been to three. So in 12 years, I've been to over 40 countries. That's amazing to me. Good health insurance, a nice apartment, maintenance that come and fix stuff on time. So it's not all financial stuff, but being able to take care of yourself, being able to have a cleaner that doesn't cost a lot of money, every Friday to come clean my apartment so I can save some time to do something else to rest. That's what soft life means to me. I think we all deserve it at some level. I asked Cheryl Ann about the grief of being abroad. So the, the grief is you miss out on important things. Not just the hard stuff, but the happy stuff. People will get married, babies will be born, people will have birthdays, and they will have engagement parties and all of those things that you can't pick up and go to. They, nobody can call me and say, oh, in two weeks, can you come to? I can't. So you miss out on those things. And it does impact your relationships and the closeness of your relationships because your friends move on. And it doesn't mean they don't love you, but they don't reach out as much because there's time differences and all of that. So there's a grief of that, of the life you had. The other thing that I would say I grieve is relationships. I dated a lot when I was in the U.S. I was dating a great guy when I left the U.S., um, or at least I thought he was. So there's a grief of that, that maybe I would have been in a long-term relationship if I had stayed in the U.S. I don't know that for sure, but there's a grief around that and that your relationships change. And if you move around a lot like I do, there's a grief that comes with every time you leave a place, even if you want to leave. So even when I left Ethiopia, there was a grief there. Even when I left Egypt, there was a grief there because I had made such good friends. And when I left the Ivory Coast, there was a big grief there because I loved working at that school. My family is really supportive and I am grateful for that. But I think in the beginning, they probably thought I was a little crazy, but now they get it. So they're like, well, where are you gonna go next? I think when I was home last year for the several months, my mother hoped that I would stay and I pondered it. I applied to a school in DC and I didn't get it. So I was like, that was the universe telling me you still got more places to be because I loved living in DC. I had a great life, but I have a great life now too. It's absence of relationship, but there's still some really good things about it. There's some great things about it as well. So I'm not ready to give it up yet. I asked Cheryl Ann, what is her personal definition of wellness and how has that definition and also practice evolved as she has lived abroad? So for me, wellness is about the daily 
things that you do to create a good life for yourself, whether it is physical things or financial things or spiritual things or mental things. You know, I'm a counselor. So for me, mental health is really important. And I have seen a therapist off and on since I've been international for different reasons. I'm seeing one now because I'm dealing with the grief of my grandmother. But I think wellness about is about that, right? Choosing that even though I know the strategies because I'm a counselor, that it still helps me to be able to talk to somebody about it to get this heaviness off of me. It's about the things you have to do to live a good life. So whether it's that you don't spend more than you make <laughs> because you can't live a really good life if you're broke all the time or if you're in a, a lot of credit card debt, is having good boundaries, which I'm really good at now, and saying sorry. And I don't even say sorry. You just say I'm not doing that, or I can't do that, or no. If you want to do this, no. And then I don't offer explanation. I'm not one of those people who feel like I have to make up something to say no to something. Like, that's not working for me right now. So for me, that's mental wellness. Physical wellness is exercising even though I hate it. Trying to figure out what's going on with my sleep. Part of that is therapy and part of that is going to the doctor tomorrow to have a conversation with my doctor. So for me, it's about the things you do to make sure you're living a good life, that you're healthy, that you're happy is good, but you don't have to be happy all the time, but you know how to bounce back from disappointment. I tell people that that's my superpower. I'm weird, so I allow kids to be weird. I give them permission to be weird because they'll be like, miss, you weird. I am. I'm an awkward black girl. But I'm also about balance and saying things that I don't want to do and getting better as an individual. So I think the biggest gift I got from being abroad is learning about work-life balance and developing better boundaries at work. So putting myself first because counselors and educators, we are givers and we have bad boundaries because we are givers and because most of us came into this profession to save children. And in order to save children, you got to sacrifice yourself or that's what we believe, but you don't. You don't have to sacrifice yourself. And so I think that's one of the things that I did learn internationally, that I can set balance and boundaries and still be good at my job and be great at my job. Cheryl Ann is also a business owner. And so I asked her to share with all of you what her business is, who it helps, and how all of you can learn more. So I started a business last year, Weeks Enterprise, and the interesting or lovely part of it is the logo is my hand and my grandma's hands. And so it's weeksenterprise.com. I talk about mental health, consent, boundaries, psychological safety. I'm teaching a course this summer in Rome through the Principals Training Center called Culturally Responsive Counseling. I give workshops for educators, parents, students around those topics. In terms, I think boundaries and consent were the ones that I started with because the idea came out of my desire to do more consent talks when I was working, I think in Egypt, because you can't talk about consent in the Middle East. So I thought I could still do that through my business virtually, um, even though I couldn't do it at school. And that's the same thing here with me being in Dubai. I can't talk to kids about consent, but I can have that conversation 
and an ALOC conference or an ISCA, the American International School Counselor Associations Conference or for another organization. So that's what I do, weeksenterprise.com. Thank you so much, Cheryl Ann, for sharing your amazing story with all of us. If you'd like to stay connected to Cheryl Ann, you can via social media. I am on Twitter and it is Bajan Week, so Bajan like Barbadian slang, so it's B-A-J-A-N, my last name. I am on Instagram and my business is weeksenterprise.com, Bajan Expat School Counselor on Instagram. On Facebook is my name, on LinkedIn is my name, so Cheryl Ann Weeks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you'd like to learn more about this guest, please check out their show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone who would be an interesting guest on the podcast, please fill out the guest inquiry form located on the website under the contact tab. That's flourishintheforeign.com slash contact. I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of the season. So be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. Stay up to date with everything that is happening with me and the podcast by subscribing to the Flourish in the Foreign newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter via the link in the description of this episode or by going to the website flourishintheforeign.com. Be sure to check out the Flourish in the Foreign blog and the Flourish in the Foreign bookshop powered by bookshop.org, where you can support local bookstores and Flourish in the Foreign at the same time. Check out my list of books to help you move, live, and thrive abroad. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel for when I drop new videos and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Flourish Foreign. You can also follow the podcast on LinkedIn at Flourish in the Foreign. And of course, subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform you listen on and leave a review. As always, Big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Here is this week's affirmation. Take whatever resonates and leave what doesn't. I can do hard things. I know like I know that I can do hard things while creating space in my spirit and in my life to receive the things of my heart's desire with ease and softness. I can do hard things while being gentle with myself, knowing that there's no need to berate or harass myself into getting whatever I feel I need to get. I am good and I am well just as I am knowing that I respond much better to honey as opposed to vinegar. I can do hard things and still require and desire rest, deep and powerful and healing rest. I can do hard things and ask for help and receive it lovingly, 
knowing that as I ask for help and I receive it, it does not diminish me as a person. It does not say anything about my capabilities. It just says that I need help. And I'm so grateful that I have a community of support that will lend me their help. I can do hard things while being excited for this amazing future that I am cultivating day by day. Everything is temporary. So I know that these hard things, this hard time will pass. And I take solace and joy in that. And so it is. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. The point of making these women as mediocre and messy as possible is to show that the deepest well can also be drained. And that's one of my favorite Swedish phrases. In Swedish, it's den du pastet brunnen kan också Thomas. So the deepest well can also be drained. And black women are some of the deepest wells in society. So what I wanted to show with their stories is once they start losing strength and that <laughs> bottomless, quote-unquote, source of resilience, then at the bottom of it all, they are just human beings like you and me that need support emotionally, mentally, physically, holistically.